Once again, thank you for joining us this morning as we worship together. Today, our text is in the Gospel of Matthew. We're continuing our series on kingdom parables, a section of, chapter of Matthew's Gospel in chapter 13 that contains seven parables related to the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Today, we'll be reading the parable of the pearl. In, ch in chapter 13, verses 45 and 46, Jesus says to his disciples, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. One of the remarkable qualities of Jesus was how he was able to identify with people from all walks of life. His disciples were fishermen, in the financial uh, world, Matthew was a tax collector. And then other people whom he encountered were from places like, well, Nicodemus was a member of the Jewish ruling council. You remember the woman at the well he met as he traveled through Samaria? There all by herself, probably an outcast from her community. Thinking about the man named Bartimaeus who was blind, whom Jesus encountered and gave healing to him. I could go on and on about the people whom Jesus encountered and met right where they were and explain things on their level, from their background. He was able to identify with activities like raising sheep, farming, running a business, family life. When we read these parables in chapter 13 of Matthew's gospel, we see he did just that. As we look at them, he's describing the kingdom of heaven and he's using everyday common terms from people's walk of life to illustrate how God was at work in the world. The kingdom of heaven, like a farmer who sowed seed, a wheat farmer, a man who planted mustard seed, a woman who mixed yeast into her dough and it went through the entire batch. A worker who discovered a hidden treasure in a field. A merchant in search of the finest pearl. And next week we'll see he talks about fishermen who lowered a net into the lake. Out of these seven, three parables about farming, one about cooking, one about working, one about commerce, another about fishing. Jesus knew his audience, and he told stories that people could understand. Today's parable is about a jewelry merchant who specialized in buying and selling pearls. Similar to the parable we studied last Sunday, where a man was working out in a field, probably clearing a section for a new crop, as he dug, his shovel struck something, not a stone, not a tree root. 
And he discovered as he dug with his hands a box, a treasure box full of riches, more than he could ever have imagined. And he reburied the treasure box and went away and sold everything that he had and bought the entire field. In the parable of the treasure, of the hidden, hidden treasure, the man discovered the treasure by accident. He wasn't looking for anything at all. In today's parable, Jesus tells the story of a merchant who is on a very intentional journey, different than the man who discovered the treasure hidden. This merchant knew exactly what he was looking for. And when he found the one... When he found the one pearl, the one he'd been searching for for a long, long time, most likely, he went away and bought, sold everything that he had, and he bought it. I want to talk about pearls for just a minute so that we can understand how precious they were in the ancient world. They're precious to us today. They're a result of a natural process that happens within the oyster. It's when a, a foreign substance like a grain of sand or a little piece of the shell might come off and get inside it and irritates the tissue. It's to the oyster like a burr under the saddle on a horse or a pebble in your running shoe when you're exercising. And immediately you have to stop, take your shoe off, empty out the pebble and put it back on. Something so small can be very disruptive. When that little fragment gets inside the oyster and irritates the tissue, then it secretes a substance to protect itself from further damage. And that substance calcifies around that irritant and over a period of time, many years, forms a pearl. Because they are occurring naturally in just a few pearls, they are a very rare find. They've been harvested pearls for thousands of years. They were a symbol of wealth and power, and often they were uh, put into the trade, and people would spend all kinds of money on them. They were different qualities and nature, and a merchant like this do exactly what he was looking for as he went around seeking to find that pearl of great price. Pearls often came from the waters of the Persian Gulf or the Red Sea, the Indian Ocean, even as far away as off the coast of Britain and the waters of the Philippines. Today, South Sea pearls are among the most valuable that people like to purchase. Pearl divers would often go as far as 100 feet down to the surface of the seafloor to find oyster pearls and uh, bring them up to the surface. Sometimes they would tie a rope around their foot with a stone on it so that they would get um, down to the bottom much more quickly, hold their breath, and then bring up the oysters and hope to find a rare pearl. 
It is sad that many of them died in the process. And it is also disturbing that many people who dove for pearls then and even today are part of people involved in human trafficking. They are enslaved and forced to do this kind of work. These pearls were cherished by royals. They were kept as investments like gold or silver. So precious pearls were that in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 21, the gates of heaven are described as 12 individual pearls. Listen, 12 gates were 12 pearls, and each gate made of single pearls. The great street of the city was gold as pure as transparent glass. The Greek word translated pearl in our text is margarites. It's where we get the English name Margaret. My mother-in-law has that name. Jesus describes a merchant who is going around looking for the finest of pearls, the type, looking for the right shape, the right color, the right surface as smooth as possible, and quality, luster, all of these things. And the scripture says that when he found the one he was looking for, he knew what he needed to do. He went away, sold everything that he had to buy the one. What would it have been like? Can you imagine? This painting depicts, it's by an 18th century, a 19th century British artist, John Millais. It might give us a little hint. If you look at the picture, the merchant is depicted on the right-hand side. And the owner of the pearl is depicted on your left. And the merchant is trying to reach out and touch the pearl to inspect it, probably mesmerized by it. And the owner of the pearl is holding it very close to his chest and had it has his hand out asking for the money. He knew what he had seen. And the one who owned it knew how valuable it was. And Jesus is telling this story as an example, as an illustration of what it means to respond to the inworking of the kingdom of God in our lives. There are a lot of religions out there. There are a lot of philosophies out there. And in that world, there were all kinds of them. Jesus was ministering and training his disciples in the middle of a, a, a world that was very pluralistic and all kinds of w uh, religions and gods and philosophies. And he's trying to help the disciples to see that when you see that one, you know exactly what it is. And there is a willingness to sacrifice everything for it, to give your entire life for the kingdom of heaven. And that's exactly what we said last Sunday, that Jesus gave his all to purchase our forgiveness, our redemption, and desires that we have a willingness of heart to give our heart, all of us, to him. Where your treasure is, 
there your heart will be also, as we said last Sunday. These two parables are similar in that they tell of the immediate response of what had happened when someone encountered something of great value. If we treat them literally, sometimes we will miss the, the point of what Jesus is trying to say. For example, someone might think, well, how could the merchant have gone back and liquidated all of his assets and sold all of his property and his livestock and uh, any real estate holdings to liquidate those and then make the journey back all the way to where he had encountered the person who owned the pearl at that market or wherever it was, how would there have been time to do all of that and the pearl not been sold out from underneath them? Or someone might think, well, purchasing a pearl like that, that's a waste of money. There were a lot of other things that th this merchant could have done uh, with his resources than buy such a materialistic thing. And if we, if we stay there, and we might think it's good to, to process things in that way, but if we stay there, then I, I believe we miss the, the bigger point that Jesus is expressing to his disciples the value of what God is doing and the response, an immediate response to God's work that there is a willingness to, to follow and be willing to open ourselves up to make sacrifices for the cause of the kingdom of God. A life devoted to God through Jesus Christ is priceless, one commentator says. It is also transformative to the core. A true follower of Jesus, the writer says, cannot follow, ca can, cannot experience the kingdom of heaven and remain the same. There, there must be an, uh, an, an immediate and sacrificial response, a willingness to give up everything to follow Jesus. You know what that's like. It's hard. And if you're like me, sometimes, well, I feel like my priorities are in the wrong place. And I, I believe that's why worship is so important and Bible study is so important. And being with others who have like faith in Christ is so important because they all, the God's word and prayer and worship and being together with believers who uh, are, are like-minded help center us and point us back uh, to that relationship with Christ that is so very important and priceless to this world. It helps us to be different and not respond. In fact, uh, you heard Pastor Matthew talk about the Afghani refugees who are coming to the United States and other parts of the world. Some people look at, at them as unwelcome or an inconvenience. But the kingdom of heaven says we look at them as our guests, as our neighbor, and that we do everything that we can to love God and love neighbor and welcome them as a church. And I'm thankful, Matthew, that you've taken the leadership uh, I believe through Tanya and their relationship with Fort Lee and the chaplain, David, both of you, seeing how God is at work, making that connection that we could do something tangible right now, uh, an immediate response to a need. And then trusting God will show us how we might continue to further that ministry as we know more. There's a willingness to respond to a need. There's a willingness to respond to what God is doing. 
I believe that is understood as being in the will of God. The good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Someone has said that the kingdom of heaven is really about being in the will of God. That God has broken into this world in Christ Jesus. And we aren't waiting for uh, some final judgment that there has been uh, an inbreaking of the kingdom. That the kingdom of heaven is pervasive. The power of God is at work. And God desires that we join him in what God is already doing. In his good, pleasing, and perfect will for the world. He's not going to, God is not going to, to ask us to do something that's contrary to his character and nature. His will is good. Romans 12.2 also says it's pleasing. It would be as a, an, uh, a sacrifice of praise to our God. And it's perfect. That it, if it comes from God, it, it's perfect. Now, we are imperfect people. And I know that there have been so many times in my life where I have thought something was the will of God and have made a wrong decision. Maybe you could say the same thing in some decisions you've made. But by the grace of God, God enables uh, us to do the will of God wherever we are. His desire is good, pleasing, and perfect, but his grace is all sufficient for us. And if we go the wrong direction, that God can redeem that situation and make something good come. All things work for the good of those whom God loves and calls according to his purposes. I believe that being in the will of God is also being one with God. This is part of what Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. He prayed to the Father that his followers would be one as you and I are one. Jesus is praying that the followers of Jesus Christ on this earth and his churches would have the same kind of relationship that Jesus has with the Father. I, the, I and the Father are one. So Jesus prays that we are one as we seek to join God in what God is doing, following the will of God. And we understand that the will of God is not just works. The book of James, which you heard earlier in the service, goes on to say that faith without works is dead. Then that is absolutely true. But being in the will of God is not just doing stuff for God. I believe that we can get confused and think that the will of God is a series of projects that we're supposed to complete or programs that we're supposed to implement. Often we Baptists who are, we're very, um, how do we say it, very much a doing kind of people. We like to see things happen, check the boxes, and go on to the next thing. I know I, I do too. I like to complete something. I like to see a plan. But James says faith without works is dead, but reminds us that faith in God is the way that we are able to produce fruit. That I believe being in the will of God is abiding with the Father. And out of being one with God, being one with Christ, as his church, as individuals and as a corporate body, then God will reveal the ways that we are to join God in what we are to do. Those plans will emerge or out, uh, overflow from the abiding relationship that we have as individuals with Jesus Christ and that we have corporately as a church. So the kingdom of heaven, the will of God, the power of God, 
God at work in this world has to begin with an abiding relationship first and foremost. Jesus said in John chapter 15 these words, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. Chapter 15, verse 1. And then in verse 5, Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. There's the abiding relationship that must happen. Apart from me, you can do no thing. We must abide as fruit on the vine in Christ, in prayer, in the word, in worship, in fellowship with one another, in the breaking of the bread, drawing our power and sustaining energy from God. And then Jesus says, if anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And then in verse 9 of chapter 15, as the Father has loved me, so I have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, verse 12, love each other as I have loved you. And in this passage, the word is translated remain, but in other translations, the word is abide, that we would abide in Christ. I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do no thing. A preacher named F.E. Marsh says this. The will of God, nothing less, nothing more, nothing else. The will of God, nothing, nothing less, nothing more, nothing else. That's my prayer for our church. The will of God, nothing less, nothing more, nothing else. As we go through our visioning journey this year, I am so uh, thankful and prayerful that this is our that this would be our mindset, that we seek simply the will of God, that we would be indifferent to anything else but the will of God. I'd like to close with this um, ancient story that I read. It's about a monk who was on a journey. It was a, a traveler on a journey, and he went to a village and encountered a monk. And he asked the monk if he could spare some bread. The traveler was hungry. So the monk opened his satchel, and there was bread there, but there was also a precious jewel. The traveler saw the jewel and said, can I have that? And the monk gladly handed it over. The traveler continued on his way, 
A few days later, he returned to the village. He found the monk and went to him and said, I wanted to give you this precious jewel back. Of course, the monk, the, the monk was certainly caught off guard. I want to give you this precious jewel back. I want what is inside of you that caused you to give me the jewel. I believe that's what the world is looking for in us Christians. That we have a willingness to make sacrifices, to love God, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That as that merchant responded immediately with a willingness of heart to sell everything he had, so would we too be willing to give up our all as a sacrifice of praise for our God. Let us pray together.